So my guest on this week's episode is Maxime Bouchemin, who works at Airbnb, as well as being a main committer on Apache Airflow and Airbnb's Superset projects. So Maxime also wrote a very good and influential blog post recently entitled The Rise of the Data Engineer. And I've invited him onto the show to talk about that post, his work as a data engineer at Airbnb, and how he got to that point having worked in a more traditional BI developer role many years ago. And also his work on Airflow and Supersets, which I know many of you have been kind of like listening to and, and hearing about and so on. It's quite good to get the person behind it to uh, talk about it as well. So Maxime, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. And uh, just introduce yourself properly and what you do at Airbnb at the moment. Perfect. Thank you for having me on the show. So it's a, it's an honor to be on the show. Um, so I, I'm going to talk uh, uh, yeah, a little bit about um, you know how I got to Airbnb and what I do at Airbnb now. Um, so I uh, I come from Facebook. So I used to work at um, you know Yahoo and Facebook, and now at Airbnb. And what brought me to Airbnb was oh, well, first you know uh, it's important to believe in, in the mission and, and believe in the company. And you know, I really uh, the, the mission of like belong anywhere at Airbnb really resonated with me. Um, so you know, this idea that you could you know that home is not necessarily as uh, as a you know constant, or may, maybe home can be something that changes over time as you change lifestyle through your life. And you know, I, I like some of these ideas. And then uh, you know, I spoke with people at Airbnb a few times casually about potentially working there. And it, it was just really apparent to me that um, I could, you know, have so much impact there coming uh, coming from Facebook where, you know, arguably they are a few years ahead, uh, at least, you know, in terms of uh, data and, and tooling and all that stuff. Um, I spoke to people at Airbnb and I was like, it, it, it's, it felt like I had seen the future. I could bring that um, to Airbnb and help them jump and uh, may, maybe skip forward and and you know um, have a lot of, of impact there. So um, and it was also clear that they needed something like Airflow at the time, uh, which is so Airflow for context is a, is a batch process orchestrator. <clears throat> and um, as you know, as I was speaking with the people there, they're like, oh, you know, if you join Airbnb, you can uh, start working on, on on this project and make it open source. And it was really important to me. I had this idea of I, I want to manage a, uh, I want to start a big open source project, and this might be just the opportunity. So that's what brought me there in the first place. Okay. Okay. So and so your background. What's interesting as well is your background and your route into this development is from quite a traditional kind of BI development role. And I think you, when you worked at Facebook at the start, you were classed as a kind of BI developer. What's your What's your kind of history in that sort of area? Right. So I started so my career very so early on in around like 2000. I did a little bit of uh, web development, but soon after. Um, I started getting involved in the data projects at um, at Ubisoft at the time, and they were uh, starting to talk about building a data warehouse. Which I guess you know some of the theory, um, you know some of the books about data warehousing had been written in the '90s, and bigger companies were building data warehouses, and you know Ubisoft was starting to get serious around that, and uh, you know building a warehouse, and they bought this this package called Hyperion S-Base and they, they were looking for a, a, a tech a techie to, to manage and you know help you know make that project successful internally. So then I started working on, on all of these things. So building the warehouse, we had um, you know the, the Microsoft SQL Server suite at, at the time. I believe it was uh, the 97 or I think it was called SQL Server 7. So very early on in the, in the projects uh, we had uh, I believe it, a little bit later we we got um, business objects, but kind of this traditional stack, and we started basically reading the books and uh, building the warehouse, and you know working with people at Hyperion to uh, to build our financial uh, solution around their tools. So that's where you know coming from. So I've got seven years or so at Ubisoft where I was just focused on traditional data warehousing, business intelligence, ETL, um, store procedures, um, and all that stuff. So that's my foundation. And when I, when I left to go to Yahoo, um, that, that was a big shift because Yahoo was a lot more, uh, you know, somewhat closer to what we think of a data engineer nowadays. So more programming and scripting 
and and perhaps a little bit less less tooling, more thinking in parallel, big data type stuff. And it was also uh, the rise of of Hadoop at Yahoo at the time. Okay, okay. So and that leads quite nicely into into uh, the reason that I wanted to speak to you really. So you wrote a blog post recently on Medium called "The Rise of the Data Engineer," and I think. It, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are like on it, but certainly it looks like a very kind of it looks like an article that resonated with a lot of people, and uh, I think it summarised some of the changes that are happening and uh, within our industry and how the role of BI and data warehouse and developers changed over time and how it's different now within organisations like kind of uh, like Airbnb, for example. So maybe just tell us a bit about to summarise what the article was and and what was the background to it. What what kind of motivated you to write the article, really? Right, so I had this this thought for I think it had been at least a year or two that I've been thinking about writing something like the rise of the data engineer, and I remember reading a, a similar article called the rise of the data scientist. Um, I believe I, I had read it probably it feels like a decade before, um, so I'm not sure. Um, I don't have the exact uh, reference to the article, but I'm sure if you Google the rise of the data scientist, you'll find an equivalent or similar post in a lot of ways that. Um, um, you know, at a point in time, someone decided to kind of ground this idea of like, what is a data scientist? What do they do? Why do organizations need them? And I'd been thinking, you know, uh, now that the the word um, or the title data engineer was getting thrown around and uh, it was becoming quite quite a big popular thing, there was nothing that had um, really defined like, what is a data engineer? How does it relate to uh, existing positions like you know business, business intelligence engineer or data warehouse architect, or how do you know data engineers and data scientists collaborate together? So I thought there's a great opportunity here for me to, uh, from my specific perspective, to explore what is data engineering and to kind of define it myself since no one had done it before. I was thinking maybe I have the opportunity here to define it um, for others so that my vision becomes the, the actual vision for this industry. And, you know, t- you mentioned the numbers a little bit. So this uh, this post, I was surprised to find that it got extremely popular on Medium. And uh, so we, I, I have about 65,000 views and um, believe it or not, 20,000 people read through the entire article. So that means uh, it's something important. A little bit, um, something I wanted to mention too, is this um, other post that came, uh, I I think soon after, Um, what is it called? I'll I'll try to dig it out, but it was around uh, data engineering as well and stating the fact that um, at this time, I believe there, or at the time they wrote it, there was 6,500 people on LinkedIn uh, calling their title or saying, I'm a data engineer, uh, while there was six, uh, just about the same number of job recs open uh, to try to hire 6,500 data engineers in San Francisco alone. Um, so there's definitely something, something big happening in this space. Okay, so so again, I think what resonated was certainly with me was that it, it the the world you described and the way that kind of a BI development and ETL development and so on is is done within within startups and within kind of companies working with large amounts of data and so on is is kind of different. It's a different kind of role really to to, to BI development and so on. There, so why don't you just outline in a way what what it what is it that you get you do day to day at Airbnb? In terms of development and the development process, how does that differ, do you think, from the things that people are more used to with kind of formal ETL and formal BI development and so on? What's, what's different? What, what, what warrants it being a different kind of role in your mind to BI development? Right. Um, so the first thing is, you know, business intelligence, engineering, and the, the tools that the tool set and the, those processes from, from before, they still exist in a lot of organizations. And, you know, there's some organizations are taking a different approach to to data and analytics and ETL but you know I want to say that the old approach still exists and is still valid and the, the tools from the past you know still work well for a lot of organizations um, what is different though um, so one one major factor I believe is is the rise of uh, I guess Call it, I hate to say that word, but like big data and the big data tooling and the Hadoop ecosystem um, is very different as traditional databases and computation and storage has changed quite a bit. 
Um, so the tool set in that environment and the scale have, has grown quite a bit. And I think a lot of the tooling and, and processes from the past um, don't don't work anymore, which uh, warrants an, a new set of tools and a new uh, a new approach. I believe also the information worker or is getting more technical in general. Um, so that means like it, traditional analysts might be able to write SQL nowadays, but everyone is climbing that ladder of complexity and, and uh, becoming more technical. And for data engineers, that means in a lot of cases writing more code, where in the past maybe ETL tools were more drag and drop. Um, at this point in time, we're expecting modern data engineers to uh, to write high quality code because the problems we're solving are complex and require, um, you know, but potentially like more abstract tooling and uh, being able to to write code. Um, um, that touches some of the elements of the answer. There's so much more to it, but yes. Okay. Okay. So, how, and again, I suppose data engineer. There's a there's a there's a there's a deliberate distinction there made between data engineer and data scientist. So again, how does it differ? How would you say an en data engineer differs from a data scientist? What 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 point are we trying to make there, really? Right. Uh, so first, to try, try to ground, uh, you know, what a data scientist is. So to me, the the term, the, you know, there's kind of a real definition, and, and it's been it's been overloaded quite a bit. But to me, uh, data scientists has something to do with uh, well first it's it's an analyst that can write code or someone with with strong analytical skills um, who uh, is able to code there's also an element of uh, publishing perhaps right like so so science is academic and there's an element where potentially you could say like a data scientist if they're really doing science they should publish articles do peer review and follow this um, the scientific process, I would say. Um, now, where where I see the term as being very overloaded is, uh, you know, I think um, analysts that work in San Francisco or just you know data analysts that live in San Francisco are called data scientists because they want to be called that because that's a, a sexy name and that's you know a, a modern um, appellation and something that people aspire to this title. Uh, so it's been overloaded quite a bit. And now in relation to, to data engineering, so the, to me, the core of data engineering is, uh, you know, the, the core role is someone who would build data structures and data pipelines for an organization. And that's, you know, essentially what we used to call ETL. Um, but, but ETL has changed quite a bit in, in the face of uh, new tools, a new set of tools. Um, also, in you know some of the processes and some of the new tools, um, I've redefined some of the foundational concept of ETL. Uh, for instance, you know da data modeling. While uh, uh, you know it's, I think data modeling hasn't changed necessarily that much. Uh, if you look at uh, concepts like you know star schemas and uh, dimensional modeling, I would say some of this still applies. But has changed enough in the light of, of new tools and uh, and databases that don't necessarily have the same constraints as they, they used to have. Um, so, you know, where is the line between data science and data engineering? Is uh, you know, uh, there, there's probably a fair amount of overlap too, and we want people to uh, to overlap. We, we don't necessarily want to you know put a wall there. But I would say um, data engineers care most and you know about building data structures and data pipelines for longer term solution while data scientists might be focused on something this week and something else next week the engineer would be you know uh, building a longer term solution um, also on the on the side of data science there's this idea of like using machine learning quite a bit and that that is also true on the data engineering side but maybe with on a slightly longer term vision Okay. Okay. So I, I think certainly, I think the first mention I heard of the term data engineer was that was obviously your, your post there. I think Kurt Monash um, posted something a while ago, again making this distinction between 
not everything you do within big data and so on is is data science. You know, there's there's the kind of there's people that specialise more in the infrastructure and the architecture and the pipelines, as you said, and and that is a distinct kind of like role in itself, really. Um, and I think I think you hit you hit on it there with the ETL part, and I think having come into that world myself from 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 kind of a more traditional world of of ETL tools and informatica and so on, ETL like you say ETL is changing and. I think there's a question as to whether or not what we do now with scripting and, and everything being at this more kind of like, uh, I wouldn't say immature, but certainly a more, a more kind of like a basic level, whether, that's, whether that is uh, a function of how kind of like how, how new this is or whether the way we do ETL has is, is changed completely. And I think it'd be interesting to talk to you later about airflow and, and so on. Um, did you see that blog post? There was, a, there was a blog post by somebody else as well, which was engineers shouldn't write ETL. And it was by Jeff Magnuson, and it was out recently as well. And it was a similar kind of topic, but it was talking about how, because ETL has changed, different people should be doing it and doing it in a different way. I mean, fundamentally, do you think ETL is different now? Do you think it's, how would you approach it differently, really, for, for this? And what's different about doing it in this environment? Yes, so I'm not familiar with the article you're mentioning, but I'll, I'll yeah. definitely look it up. And I'm curious; it sounds controversial. So, I, well, know, I think now I get my, my interest two, in Korea. Yeah, there's two points to it really. One is that ETL has changed, like you said, but then there's a point of saying that actually, if it is an ETL task, then actually it should still be done the old way. But if it's different, if it is data engineering, I don't know. It, the point of it is saying that in a way, you shouldn't make data scientists be ETL developers because it, because just because it's oh, different yeah. data, it's interesting kind of area, really. Yeah, that's that's one thing. You know, data data engineers are kind of here to to save data scientists from doing ETL in a very poor manner. So um, I, I believe that's that was the end goal when I when I got to Airbnb. There was already you know dozens of data scientists that clearly did not know much about data structures and data pipelining, and were doing a horrible job. While they are like really good at what they do, they were not good at data engineering. And by, you know, as we, as I came in, there was people, um, there was a small team of data engineers or ETL people really at Airbnb that were building data structures that, and pipelines that data scientists could, could use so that um, their analysis would be uh, based, built on the foundation of strong, uh, strong pipelines. So instead of going back to the raw tables and the raw ingredients and building their um, <laughs> their dirty derivatives, they would start from a, where data has been cleansed and organized, and uh, and where you know there's been consensus on defining metrics and dimensions, and uh, for it then become harder for them to, uh, or easy, a lot easier for them to to get right metrics and uh, you know get the analysis that were in line with each other so now so, talking about etl yeah, and, and how yeah. it has changed mm -hmm. i don't know if you want to take the tangent or no no please yeah okay so on etl um so how has it changed so in the 2000s uh, i would say there's been this rise of a lot of etl tools by vendors you know business intelligence vendors that were selling things like informatica ibm data stage um SQL Server, uh, I believe it's called Integration Services, and Abinitio, so a whole set of tools that were uh, like all drag and drop tools. So the idea was you have this, this software package, you connect to your data sources, you drag and drop your table, you drag and drop transformers, or, you know, and you, you build a small graph of data objects and transformations. Um, and so really often they would have these data flows and workflows, and you'd You'd build those by drag and dropping, and that's all. That's all fine and dandy. The premise was that people working with data perhaps did not know or didn't want to write code, um, you know. So, so that they would dra do drag and drop in theory would make that easier for them. But then, you know, in the post in the rise of data engineer, I argued that that um, the problems we're solving now and perhaps that we were solving at the time, are too complex to be done with drag and drop tools. Um, with drag and drop, while it might, might seem easy at first, um, you lose on the whole software engineering, um, every, everything that you get in software engineering because you're writing code, things like source control and be able to, to diff you know, different branches, uh, you know, being able to create abstractions, uh, being able to Re, you know, create blocks of code that you're going to reuse through, like you know, looping, inheritance, uh, composition, um, 
you'd you'd have some version of that in the in the drag and drop tools, but you know it, it still be made it hard to do um, things that are easy to do when when you're writing code. And I think you know uh, may, maybe you know I argue in the post, and you know I'd like to maybe write a post that would be more specific about like why is drag and drop not the right abstraction or why was it a mistake almost like for to have like a decade of drag and drop tools in the etl space but um i, I you know I, I think in in the end code is the best way to express logic and there's a reason why software engineers are not drag and dropping for loops on the screen and that you know they write in an actual programming language and for i believe a lot of those reasons why you know software engineers write code and don't do drag and drop in some sort of development environment is because it's a superior abstraction and it's and it's something solid that is timeless um, and that applies uh, at, to to data engineering as well as it does to to software engineering. But does that not is that is that not something that is is true? But therefore limits the people who can do this to a very small set of people. I mean, I guess the the point of the drag and drop, point and click kind of like ATL tools was to make it possible for people other than software engineers to do this work. So, do you not think that within the industry we're in now, this is more, at some point, how we get, how are they going to scale up to handle this, really? I mean, it, 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 do you not think at some point drag and drop will come to this, or is it just fundamentally flawed, do you think? Well, so, so drag and drop might, might be okay for a certain level of abstraction. So if you're doing something simple, um, I'm trying to equate, maybe there's like these Lego tools for kids uh, that want to learn how to code and they might uh, go into some some toy um, environment where they can specify a series of actions as visual blocks and it might be a good mental model for some or for people for people ramping up but if you're writing software at scale you need things like source control and you need to be able to to diff your code and you need to be able to um, to create you know, create a class, create a, a function, create these reusable blocks. And I believe that in drag and drop, people have created that, right? So you can have a, a for loop as a block, right? Like that we, you would drag and drop a for loop. And maybe the abstraction is more visual, but it, it is the same or a similar level of abstraction. It's just the mean, the process to, to do it is is different but you know if you can understand a tool like informatica and all of its glory and complexity uh, i believe you can you can probably understand uh the same level of abstraction on, on the uh, as a written or as code right like i don't think people people would be oh i'm able to drag and drop a source table but i'm not able to instantiate a source object you know i believe it's, it's the same abstraction and if people are able of these these abstractions in a drag and drop, uh, you know, environment, they would be they'd be able to do that in, in a code. It's, uh, it's definitely interesting. I mean, my, my, my experience has been within this kind of industry. There is no there is no equivalent of something like Informatica. You know, a lot of things that we a lot of things that we we, we had from the BI world uh, have now resurfaced in, in in the kind of big data world as such. You know, we've now got uh, platforms like BigQuery and Athena and so on that give us. A, a kind of a more tabular interface over over kind of the data. We've got you know tools like Looker, for example, and, and Superset, you know, that do a more kind of like uh, user friendly BI and analytics uh, sort of platform on top of this. But there is no there is no equivalent of Informatica, and there is no kind of graphical point and click tool for, for big data. But what there is is things like Airflow that you're working on. So I mean, right. tell us about Airflow. What that is? Tell us what problem it solves and and, and what it is first of all. Right, so so Airflow is a I would call it a, a workflow orchestrator um, for modern enterprises or, or organizations that that are uh, working with data, and I guess you know fundamentally it's you know Airflow is just a way to schedule and run uh, a set of of jobs and tasks uh, with complex dependencies, and you know in modern organizations when uh, you have, you know, perhaps a few people or dozens of people or hundreds of people working with data every day. Um, these, these people will write jobs that uh, need to be on a schedule, and that typically depends on each other. So say, uh, you know, ETL is a very classic example of that where, hey, I want to load my fact table, 
But first, I need to make sure that the source data for the day has landed. Uh, once the data lands, I'm going to populate my dimensions in a certain order uh, based on whether the, you know, are things landed, uh, are all the dependencies met. Uh, and as you move forward, you'll create these sets of, of processes and, and that need to run on a schedule with really like, complex dependencies. And Airflow is a tool that helps people um, orchestrate all of that. And to give you an idea of like the complexity of of uh, these workflows in modern organizations. So at Facebook, I believe we we're at the time where I left, so about three years ago, we were running hundreds of thousands of tasks um, every day. And uh, at Airbnb now, I believe we're using Airflow, we run around 60,000 tasks every day. And these tasks need to run in a very specific order. Each one of these tasks depends on a complex network of other tasks. And these tasks can go from you know, populating uh, you know, data in a table or in partitions to uh, you know, data that can help different parts of the business. So you can picture there's whole workflows of tasks for areas like you know, payments and fraud detection and uh, search ranking. And you know, so all of the team, each team has their own sets of complex data pipelines or workflows that need to be orchestrated in a very specific way and run every day on a schedule. Um, Airflow also makes it easy to um, to not only author these jobs, but to monitor them and track them and to, to stay sane while trying to understand why did the data did not land today or why is it not landed yet and where is the error report and can I can I get some retries when you know there's some transient errors? Can I get some tr some some tasks to retry within the parameters that I set? Can I get alerted? Can I get an easy access to my logs? Uh, can I get alerted when things are not landed in time? So Airflow is a whole set of tools around uh, monitoring or authoring, monitoring, uh, troubleshooting these uh, these complex workflows of jobs. Okay, and this was developed at Airbnb, um, and it's open source. Is that correct? I mean, this this I guess this right. is this is something that you you felt was a key thing you needed to be able to do and have to do what you're doing now as a data engineer. Right. So as I left Facebook, so Facebook adds uh, you know, a set of similar tools, uh, one called uh, Data Swarm and something called Data Bee. And those were internal tools that were not open source at the time, but were also um, were, were similar in, in, a, in a lot of ways. So uh, one thing is like they were written in Python, they worked at scale, they allow people to uh, you know, author uh, their workflows and troubleshoot them. And um, there was also this one of the core ideas was being able to um, dynamically author workflows. And I can, uh, maybe I'll get into that in, in a little. Um, so the idea of being able to not only write a static workflow, but to write a program that will define a, a workflow dynamically. And as I left Facebook, I thought um, it's going to be really hard for me to operate at the same level that I'm operating at, at Facebook with these tools, uh, without these tools. So first thing, uh, first thing, I'm going to build the tools that I need, uh, and and then I'm going to be able to to solve the the problems that I've been solving with the right set of tools. And I believe the people, so the people at Airbnb at the time were looking at some of the open source solutions uh, that existed. So there's something called um, Uzi and Askaban and uh, Luigi, and we looked at all these tools, and um, we decided that we wanted to build something something new in the light of people coming from uh, the places where these tools had been written and saying we shouldn't use like someone from Yahoo said don't please do whatever but don't use Uzi, and someone from LinkedIn was like oh, do whatever you want to do but make sure to not use Azkaban, and so so together we're like and I came from Facebook and I was like oh, I wish I had the tools from Facebook, and we decided um, to. To not to to take a new t you know to to decide to um, can we build something similar perhaps better than these tools and in, in the process open source it and give it out to the community. Excellent, excellent. So so um, I mean, in, in terms of your involvement with with this, I mean, obviously you're heavily involved there. Are you a, you're a committer? You know, what what's the what's how much time do you spend on this, and how how big an involvement have you got with this? 
Right, so Airflow specifically was really my baby. So I started the project. Um, I, I wrote the first line of code. That was probably the, the loan committer on the project for the the first, let's say, six months to a year before the project starting uh, started getting any attention from externally or before we even announced to open source it. So that was a piece of software that I wrote from scratch, uh, you know, and and that I that I pushed forward and you know wrote the code, the documentation, uh, you know, the unit tests, and eventually onboarded people, onboarded all sorts of people onto the project, and then you know now it. I would say um, my first year and a half at Airbnb, so it's been two and a half years now, but I, I was mostly focused on Airflow uh, and and solving internal problems at Airbnb using Airflow. Things like uh, rewriting um, or, or experimentation or A-B testing framework um, and then collaborating with teams and making sure they were able to build what they needed to build using Airflow. Okay, so you mentioned... So that's my... Sorry, carry on. Go ahead. I was about to say you mentioned dynamic, dynamic kind of generation there. And I suppose, I suppose in a way, you know, you've you've solved some things with 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 kind of airflow, and you mentioned dynamic generation there, and so on. What what are the ways in which you're taking this forward that are kind of non-obvious to people from more traditional backgrounds that like that? Because I mean, it sounds really interesting what you're trying to do there, and so on. Tell us about that and and where you see this going, really. Right. Um, so, so dynamic workflow generation. So. Um, so if you think of um, concepts like, uh, like I would say, analytics, say as a service, or analysis automation, or the whole idea that potentially instead of having a data engineer writing workflows individually that are static, uh, that a data engineer could build something that uh, can be used to generate workflows. So it's a level of abstraction over the perhaps the what what a data engineer would normally do. So let's say you need you need a specific kind of ETL for a an experiment that you want to run and you want to run an A/B test on your data platform. Uh, and perhaps you know there was a time you know early on at Airbnb where maybe you would write a small pipeline just for that specific use case. And the day after you want to run another experiment, but it's slightly different. And this time you want to you're going to have to write a different pipeline for that new experiment. Um, now, the Airflow allows you allow allows us to write a piece of code that perhaps can read a config file or some configuration from in a database, and based on that, create complex workflows for each experiment with a set of parameters. Um, other examples of that, you know, are, could be could be things like. Um, so, so you know, experimentation is a good use case for it. I, I should pull. I have a talk um, called "Advanced Data Engineering Patterns uh, with Apache Airflow" that tries to describe um, a bunch of of use cases, uh, you know, for for doing this sort of stuff. An example of that for us is, uh, you know, we have this tool called um, Autodag where people can. Some say an analyst or a data scientist that wants to run a certain query every day. Um, you know, they can they can put in a config file with some configuration element and easily get to a point where uh, this is going to be scheduled and run on their behalf, and there's going to be some some automation there. Um, you know, another example of this uh, would be so say uh, in in organizations like like Facebook and and you know, and Airbnb, we want to compute the same set of metrics for different areas of the business over and over. So things around, say, engagement and growth accounting. So understanding, like, how many people are using a certain feature on the website and how many people are new, churn, resurrected, stale, active. Um, so you can, you can picture that um, we would allow people to fill in a form, a simple form saying, hey, I would like to compute this for my area of the business and configure it in a very specific specific way, perhaps saying, I'm interested in specific timeframes, dimensions, demographics. Um, and they would, by filling in this form or this configuration, would build dynamically a complex workflow on their behalf. So that becomes kind of the work of a data engineer as a service somehow. Um, I can get into more complex use cases. Um, so 
uh, I'm not sure I'll do want to go. Well, that's interesting. And that actually leads on, I want to get onto the data modeling bit you talked about as well in a second, but you, the, going back to that post, which you haven't read, so it's not kind of fair to, to go into much detail, but the thrust of the, the other blog post that I mentioned as well, the one about kind of should engineers be writing ETL code, I think is interesting in what you just said, because the thrust of it was that, that engineers are always looking for, well, engineers and data scientists and data engineers are always looking for new and novel ways to solve things like ETL. Whereas actually, in fact, by doing that, um, you know, we end up building systems that are not as stable and, as, and, and a lot of this work is more doing than thinking, you know. Um, do you think that's the case or do you think in the world that you operate in, that I operate in now, that you can't have it as that? You've got to be a bit more kind of agile, a bit more kind of forward thinking, a bit more dynamic in how you do ETL. I mean, do you, what, what do you think on that? Well, ETL, it's true that in some ways it's mind-numbing, but the, the, I would say the, the easy component of ETL or the mind-numbing component of ETL um, you know, can be, with the, the right set of tools, it can be abstracted out and you know, be, done very, be solved very quickly. Now, there are things like consensus-seeking, say, how should we define metrics and dimensions? And how should we structure our table and our workflows? And how should we write optimized and performing, you know, ETL at scale? It's more challenging. Um, change management is horrible in ETL, right? Like it's so hard to say if you want to change the definition of a metric slightly, then you know there's all these derivative tables that you need to to reprocess. And Airflow certainly helps with um, the, these problems. Uh, but but you know ETL is is necessary right or should it whether it should be in batch or wh- whether you know data pipeline should be you know in in, in batch or in streaming fashion uh, you know I think is less important but like how should the data in your organization flow and get uh, get organized is a really important and and core problems to modern companies and there's just no no way to to get around it i would i would say yeah um you mentioned like, you, you mentioned you know, also data uh, modeling is changing so not only did you talk about data, etl is changing but data modeling as well and i guess that's a big part of it as well really right uh, a, f- a few more words around the, the idea of like etl and why it's necessary but it's a little bit like if you think of like the data engineers as the librarians of uh of data right like they're the people who will say in a you know the equivalent of a library would be like people will organize all the books put them on the shelves in the right place uh fill it like be in charge of managing the metadata or the little cards by which you would search and find books so it's really important to take all of this data that you get that's dirty and complicated and comes from different sources and it doesn't line up in a lot of ways and to to line it up and organize it and store it for the future for the well-being of analytics at your company so you can actually Ask questions, get answers, and you know, uh, you know, be somewhat structured in the way you do this. Um, now, data modeling is changing. So, um, I would say, like a lot of the books, I would still recommend to people real, read to read. You know, the Kimball books. Um, I, I believe star, uh, you know, star schemas and dimensional modeling are uh, are still true in, in a lot of ways. But there are things that are less, somewhat less relevant. Uh, one. One thing, you know, is the way the way that we store data now with columnar database or columnar file formats like Parquet and ORC. Um, things like creating surrogate keys, and now I'm getting a little bit technical, so I'm not sure what like, what's the percentage of the audience that will relate to, you know, what is a surrogate key. But but like now that we have dic- dictionary encoding and we have you know file formats that are potentially columnar, do we, do we need surrogate keys anymore for, um, for, I mean, there are other reasons why we may need surrogate keys, but like maintaining surrogate keys in traditional data warehousing was uh, fairly complicated and heavy, right? And um, so you'd have like all these problems around like late arriving facts and preloading dimension members and this whole idea of, um, you know, there's entire sh- chapters in these books written around um, uh, slowly changing dimensions, which I, I, you're probably getting like a uh, little ba- like bad flashbacks thinking about these uh, slowly changing dimension ideas. But but I would I would argue that's right. I would I would definitely argue that um, slowly changing dimensions. We have like kind of shortcuts 
uh, that we uh, like we have new solutions for these problems that are that are simpler, um, and perhaps in, in some cases it's due to the fact that you know storage and compute is cheaper than it used to be, com or in relation to engineering time perhaps, and uh, you know, that's one reason. And then some of the the new uh, serialization formats or uh, database engine uh, make some of the optimization we would get or some of the the performance gain we would get from, uh, say, managing surrogate keys uh, are not as significant anymore. Uh, from a perf standpoint, we don't necessarily need that because uh, because the databases are able to to kind of do that on our behalf um, without without thinking too much about it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so you, you, I think you're also involved in the the, the supersets project as well. I mean, is can you, is it something you can tell us about what it is and and um, I suppose what that's trying to achieve as well. Right, so it's my uh, second uh, big project, um, and I like I started. So I started this at Airbnb about a year and a half ago. Um, originally, uh, originally the premise was, um, you know, we we wanted to to use this database called Druid. Um, so you can check it out. So Druid is this uh, colon-oriented, uh, distributed. Um, you know, real-time database. That's a really cool database, and we had tons of use cases at Airbnb for this uh, to use Druid. The problem with Druid at the time is there was no way to really consume the the data or visualize the data easily, as none of the tools that existed on, that exist on the market had some Druid connectors. Druid used a um, a REST API to to query, so you would have to issue, you know, you have to write a JSON blob to query it and then get a JSON blob back and somehow write a custom application to, say, visualize your Druid data sets. So <clears throat> coming out of Facebook, um, I really wanted to recreate um, something similar to uh, to Scuba internally, which is also a non-open uh, source project uh, that, that exists at Facebook. And Scuba is just this um, this really fast database backend. It's mostly like in-memory uh, columnized data that you can you can query, um, you know, gigabytes, terabytes of data in under a second. And um, Scuba at Facebook has this really nice uh, front end that allows you to query the scuba back in and get answers very, very quickly. So it's very high velocity. You point to a data set, you say, I want to see these metrics grouped by that, give me this visualization, um, all, all in a you know, click um, interface that, that is very high velocity. So you can really ask, uh, you can ask hundreds of questions in, in minutes just because the database is so fast and the UI is very high velocity. So um, so looking at Druid, you know, at the time Druid had a lot of the, the properties that uh, the scuba backend offered, and there was just no front end for it. So I was like, what, what about I start writing a front end for Druid as, uh, as a hackathon project? And then, you know, uh, this went pretty well, and we ended up selecting Selecting Druid to decide to use it as we were doing a proof proof of concept with it, um, along with the little UI I was writing at the time, it worked pretty well and it, it seemed like to have a lot of potential. And quickly after that, like the scope grew around Superset, uh, which was called Panoramics at the time. We changed the name multiple times on the project, but uh, yeah. So and so the use case grew into a you know over time to become pretty much like this open source enterprise ready um, business intelligence web application so really at, the, at this point in time you know superset has become uh, the the main uh, mean by which you know people query and consume data at Airbnb and uh, you know superset is essentially a, a set of set of tools that allows you to point to a table um, you know and and explore your data Visualize it, assemble dashboards, um, and you know. Since then, we also built a, um, a SQL IDE on top of it. So very much like, uh, you know, a classic SQL IDE where you can write SQL, you can you can uh, navigate your database to get your different table definitions and metadata, write SQL, see your results, uh, you know, run a create table as statement, then visualize this uh, in Superset. So Superset is this full on, you know. Uh, business intelligence web application that is completely enterprise ready. So that means if people, uh, as a competitor, to say, 
Looker, Periscope, Mode Analytics, you know, and eventually like Tableau, like internally, um, we also use Tableau and we, we like Tableau, but uh, more and more people choose Superset just because it's, it's higher velocity. And it makes it easy for people to assemble a dashboard very, very quickly. Uh, perhaps still a bit more scrappy, uh, but you know, in the light of the life cycle of a dashboard being uh, shorter and shorter over time, like how much time do you want to spend crafting a dashboard that will be, you know, somewhat obsolete a few, a few weeks from now when the business is shifting and thinking about about uh, new questions and new problems to solve? So. Uh, so that's an overview of, of Superset. Uh, the project is going Apache. So uh, as of last week, we started incubating with the, uh, the Apache Software Foundation. So that's my second um, Apache project. And we really believe, you know, at Airbnb and personally, like I really believe in uh, the Apache Software Foundation way of doing things, which is, you know, it's a meritocracy. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of nice processes around how to organize your project, how to collaborate with other companies, um, how do we define the release process for, for this piece of software. So it's, it's been super exciting to, to work on this and it's been like my main focus over the past uh, year, year and a half or so, uh, where, you know, the Airflow community is, is super solid and strong now. And I feel like it's autonomous in a lot of ways, so it doesn't necessarily need me as much as a uh, benevolent dictator. Uh, so things have been going really well there, and now I'm focusing on on Superset uh, more and more. So, so you mentioned you mentioned Looker there as a, as, a, as a BI tool in the same sort of space, and so so Looker. One thing that you that I didn't see in in Superset that is in a tool like Looker is this concept of a semantic model or a kind of like a business metadata layer. Um, is that something that you? you see us having value in this kind of space and, and it's something that will be there in, in Superset at some point or do you think it's maybe superfluous in this kind of environment? What's your thoughts on that? So we do have a semantic layer um, and, you know, there's we can talk uh, as like BI guys from the previous, you know, generation, we can talk about this, this semantic layer a lot. I'm really interested to talk about this. So, um, so Superset as a very simple semantic layer um, superset will not do joins on your behalf. So that means the semantic layer is focused on a single table or view. And that, this is where you would define, you know, uh, what are the, the labels for your different columns and metrics and, you know, how are your calculated metrics or calculated columns or dimensions or calculated metrics, uh, what are their expressions and how should they be exposed in the UI. Now, um, you know, for people uh, coming from that previous era of of business intelligence tools, so there was this. Uh, so, say if you take business objects or a microstrategy, these things would have a very heavy, complicated semantic layer that would hold a lot of business logic. Uh, so that business logic was like, in part, you know, in the data pipelines and data structure. But then the, the, you had this map on top of that uh, for business objects. It would call the universe designer. And then the project management and micro strategy, where you would uh, bring in your physical tables and explain to the tool or give the metadata to the tool to say, how can you join these tables um, to basically not <laughs> produce bad results? Um, so which table can be joined to what table, um, and you know uh, how to how to basically how this tool can generate queries on your behalf. So. In Superset, we decided to just that that this layer uh, of complexity of how data should come together in the tabular format was not going to be part of Superset, and I it would be upstream. So either you provide a table that has all the summary information, the denormalized information that you need to answer your questions, or you can provide a view as well, right? So in a view, you can write your own joins. Or you can, and you can you know write your own metric definition in a view too. So we're just pushing, shoveling that that problem upstream, and deciding that uh, you know the tool should not take take care of that. My my opinion too is that you know you look at uh, you mentioned Looker and Looker ML, which is uh, their the Looker modeling language. Uh, so that's where you you also define that semantic layer. And on the in the case of of semantic layers in general, um, there's so much information that exists on that, that layer, and that layer is usually not accessible to to many. 
right? And it also forces uh, really strong consensus on on like how is the data modeled and organized, uh, and it requires a whole set of like specific tools, right? So if you expect every single analyst or data scientist or you know data engineer that plays with a little bit of data to go and create that layer on top of the data they produced, uh, that can be pretty prohibitive, right? To learn, say, something like Looker ML or even to get access to it. You might just be like, okay, I created my set of three tables. I'd like to query them now and make my dashboard and move on with my week. Um, in the case of Looker, it'd be like, oh, now you have to learn about Looker ML and you, we need to grant you access to that layer or you need someone to do that on your behalf, right? And that person might be like, mm, you know, you created a, ta a set of tables here that are very similar to these other tables. Why don't you use these? And let's add, let's together have a consensus on how your data should fit in the warehouse. And then the person that's just trying to get something done, um, you know, is brought into this extra layer of complexity and consensus. And you know, the tools that I've seen working really well in other environments are these like high velocity tools where uh, you can just kind of move forward and do your own thing. Um, yeah. So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Is yeah. I mean, so so just to round things off. I mean, at the end of the, the end of that blog post, we talked about the rise of the data engineer. You talked about organisation within the department, and you talked about kind of you know roles and responsibilities and so on within within there. So maybe just outline where what the key kind of roles are within a kind of like a, a an organisation like yours that has data engineers and does work on this kind of scale. And, and again, kind of what's different about it, and why have you done it differently to, to more traditional kind of roles. Yeah, one, one thing I didn't talk about early on uh, in this conversation, uh, we spoke about data scientists and software engineers, but I did not talk about data infrastructure uh, engineers. So um, I guess, I guess, yeah, so, and, and you know, a lot of these positions, as the company grows, you need more clear role definitions. And, you know, maybe it makes, it makes more sense at that point in time to uh, started doing distinctions between the different roles and, and teams, but certainly at, at Airbnb, we're at, we're at a certain scale where um, certain roles become really clear cut. Where maybe originally you could call, you could hire a few data engineers, data scientists, and data data engineers are going to be in charge of the infrastructures to a to a certain point. Might be building data products. They would, you know, in smaller organizations, people do more things, roles are, are not as clear-cut. Um, in larger organizations, though, I, I like to make a distinction, or typically we'll see a distinction between uh, people who do data infrastructure and people who do data engineering. And that specialization would be uh, in the direction of a data infrastructure engineer would be in charge of, of basically insta installing, maintaining, and uh, you know, keeping up and doing some DevOps type workload around data platforms. So that means people that will be in charge of, of Hadoop and Hive and, and Druid and making sure these clusters are um, are scaling with the need, right? They'll do capacity planning. They'll do all sorts of uh, work to get alerted uh, as they 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 need to uh, grow the clusters in, in different ways. And often these, these data infrastructure engineers will also, like their engineers, they'll build solutions. So data infrastructure engineers at uh, LinkedIn build something like Kafka to solve a use case that they had. Or, um, you know, at Airbnb, our data, data infrastructure engineers will build frameworks and solutions to, say, load data into Druid to to glue these systems together um, and to do automation around the work that they would do manually. So things like a replication engine, right, that would replicate data from a, a, a Hadoop cluster to another, um, or things like um, a retention management uh, solution so that data um, at Airbnb can get anonymized and summarized and and, and, or not not summarized, but put into longer term storage, uh, get archived in, in some ways, right? So that would be um, trying to describe what a data infrastructure in, engineer would be. And then the data engineer is more specializing in, into like data modeling, data pipe, so building the data structures, the data pipelines, 
um, that the comp- the company requires. And also, you know, since we're talking about engineering and software, there's always this, this component of trying to automate your your work over time. So uh, data engineers will build more abstract solution to try to automate their their own work too. Fantastic. I mean, so so I mean, I, I, just to kind of round things off, I me mean, as you said earlier on, you were kind of hoping in a way to sort of have a chance to define this kind of term and where we're going with this. And it's a bit of a manifesto, really, you're doing here. I mean, where where are you, where are you taking this? Really, is it something that that now you've got uh, now you've got people's attention? You know, you want to develop this out further, or what's the kind of end game with this, or where do you want to get to really with this with this initiative? Really, well, so. So at first, I was kind of a shot in the dark of just doing that and seeing what uh, what would happen and whether it would uh, stimulate some conversations and define the role. And it's really interesting to this exercise of writing a manifesto. And I think it, it just turned out that it was really needed at that point in time that, you know, a lot of people were waiting for something like that. And, you know, I'm inspired to go and write more blog posts just because of the success of, of this blog post. Um, I started writing one around um, kind of timeless best practices uh, in data engineering, data modeling. So things that used to, in a lot of cases, used to be um, good practice in the past and are still today. Um, and some new concepts, too, that, uh, that are slightly more modern. So some ideas around um, using concepts from dynamic uh, programming and apply them to ETL. So immutability and idempotency um, and, uh, you know, pu- this idea of pure function and dynamic programming this would be uh, pure tasks in, in modern or in data engineering that would apply these concepts. So I'd, I have a whole blog post that I, is probably uh, half written on that subject. Um, I believe, yeah, I had a few other ideas to to you know, follow up on, on this on this one, and sometimes I try to get people um, at work too, to so my colleagues to uh, to go and write some of these uh, some of these posts too. So I've been talking with people um, that are writing posts that are somewhat related or complementary to this one. Um, though it's it's hard to justify. So I've got all this software to write too, and I've got like very like thriving communities. Um, you know, for superset and and airflow, and sometimes it's so hard to just kind of hit the pause button on on the universe and write a blog post. Um, but you know, it's really re- rewarding. So I'm looking forward to do to do you know some more of that. I, my goal was to write one blog post a month, um, and I think it's been at least like two or three months since um, since I wrote that one. Fantastic. So I'm Fantastic. And what, what's Free Code Camp? I mean, that, that's obviously the hosted thing that you ran the Medium post on. I mean, what, what is that something you're involved in as well? No. So, so what happened is, uh, so I think what happened is I wrote the blog post, and these guys thought I was taken off, and they offered to um, put it in their organization, and what yeah. they would provide in return is uh, more readership and um, to okay. to do um, kind of a review and correct uh, some of the structure. So there was like. Um, so some so someone there did a very thorough pass on the article yeah. and changed the structure a little bit, which would help. It helps, right? I'm not a professional oh, yeah. writer. It's very good. So, very uh, good. Yeah. And and they were like, oh, you'll you'll get access to like you know our tens of thousands of readers. Um, so I was like, okay, why not? Uh, I believe like I kind of did a disservice to my organization, so it, it should have been under the Airbnb. Uh, a medium organization yeah uh, but i just know how popular it's going to get so it was like well, i'm just trying this you know if i can get more readers why not just to kind of round things off uh, where would people find out more information about airflow and uh, supersets so um so i believe now we're moving the documentation in some of the, uh, the repositories but uh, github is really definitely the place to find uh the root of all the information for for these two projects so one is at github.com slash uh, airbnb slash superset and airflow is under i believe so it's under apache slash incubator dash airflow but um these things are well yeah um you know search engine optimization is yes. kicking in it's pretty easy to find out about these things um there's tons of documentation now for for airflow not only airflow's mm. documentation but people's blog posts and best practice guides mm. uh, so there are tons and tons of resources at this point for airflow and a growing amount of resources for uh, for superset too so 
uh, tons there. Um, and yeah, it seems like in light of, you know, you were talking about my accomplishments, <laughs> yeah. but like this, this blog post is so much, like, when you think about all the work that goes into like creating mm. and starting an open source project, mm. uh, versus a blog post, mm. like the blog post is so much easier, yeah. um, just a one-time thing. And, uh, but, but it's great. It's a, it brings like uh, a different kind of, of yeah. um, a feeling and it's, yeah, awesome. I definitely, definitely want to do it again. Definitely. I always find that the most uh, the most impactful and simple blog posts are the ones that have had the most time. You've thought about it in the background, really. So so what appears to be a very sort of cogent and, and concise and very well put together kind of blog post actually is, is a huge amount of work in there. So um, yeah, well, well done for doing that. And um, so just want to say thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Um, and uh, good luck with everything going forward. And I look forward to uh, reading the rest of your blog posts in the future on this topic. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, cheers. Thanks.